Why on earth does he keep choosing to accept these missions? My name is Jason. I am the manager of the last video store in the universe called Binge Movies Home Video. And I am the host of Binge Movies, the movie ranking and review podcast that you are currently listening to. This is my instant reaction for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. The naming conventions are as confusing as the naming conventions of Binge Movies episodes. So you know I love them. Yeah, I need a strong colon and a dash, right? I need multiple forms of extending punctuation in my film titles for me to make sense of them. It's just the way I roll. I'm a complicated man. I have complicated feelings. What's not complicated is the brand new voting system we've set up in light of Beach Brawl. For those of you that don't listen to the show, we normally rank movies, and at the end of the season, all of the top movies as picked by our guest, all the top movies as picked by me, face off head-to-head. -head. We get two film reviewers, film critics, filmmakers, film fanatics. We get them to square off in a movie debate we call Last Movie Standing. Um, it's a snake debate format. They debate the merits of each film, and only one film gets selected via vote to be entered into the vault. We're trying to build a people's canon, a canon for the people. We know what the experts say the best movies of all time are. We're trying to determine it for ourselves, and uh, that's what we do around here. Uh, so we are going to put up a Twitter poll, which is going to come out Wednesday, July 12th, uh, in Eastern Standard Time, and it's going to be on Twitter. If you vote on Twitter, that counts as one vote. Anybody who votes on Twitter, it, each vote... Each single vote counts as one vote. For our patrons over at patreon.com slash binge movies, you are going to vote on a patron poll and your vote will count twice as much as the Twitter poll. So you'll have your vote will count two times. Uh, it'll have a weight, uh, a share of two. So uh, uh, then our elite patrons will get their own elite poll, and their vote will count as three. The reasoning behind this is we want people who are actually listening to the show, contributing to the polls to determine who won the debate, and, and that way it doesn't just slip into, well, what film or what film franchise has the biggest fan base? We want the fan base to respond, right? We want everybody to, to weigh in, but there's got to be a way to equal out those votes, and the best way to do that is by giving kind of different shares to uh, different people based on their support of the show. And we want to reward those people who listen to the show and for those who support the show via Patreon. So uh, that's what we do. As far as these instant reactions go, uh, I go to the movie theater, I leave the movie theater, I tell you my general impressions of the film. If you want them even more instantaneously with a lot of other side commentary, including spoilers, then you want to join Patreon, patreon.com slash binge movies. Uh, if you are listening to this on Patreon, you're getting the extended cut of my review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. If not, go to what are you waiting for? Go over to Patreon. Get the early and extended cuts of these instant reactions. Enough shilling. Now to the movie. Um, spoiler free, up front. It took me a moment to acclimatize myself to the tone of this film. The film has a pervasive sense of foreboding that I would liken to 70s political thriller sort of things. 
um, which puts it back into the camp of the, the, the De Palma film. A lot of Dutch angles in this movie. And the visual palette, the shot choice, um, the return of certain characters, um, it all feels like a little bit of embracing the, again, that, that 70s political thriller intrigue, kind of topsy-turvy, mess-with-your-head, De Palma style of the original film. This film is all about going back. It's not about going back in the way that a lot of franchise films are by, you know, de-aging characters or by, you know, bringing in a lot of Easter eggs or a lot of cameos or that sort of thing. This movie doesn't do that. What the movie does is it tries to fill in for us a little bit of details about Ethan Hunt. Just, just enough. And if you have been a long-term fan or a long-term watcher of this series, it begins to make sense. Um, when we meet Ethan, instantaneously, that foreboding sense is true, that, that we get that sense. He's in a desolate room, almost an abandoned space, completely hidden in shadows. And he has an interaction with somebody. And immediately the sense we get is that this is, this is almost as if this is a new chapter in the Mission Impossible story, in the Ethan Hunt story, maybe even a whole new book, that what had gone on since really three through, I don't know, what are we up to, six? <laughs> you know, um, that, that that syndicate story, the story, the sort of the reboot is initiated by J.J. Abrams, um, that that whole Ethan's married, he's got a wife, he puts her in hiding, he gets the team back together, he brings, you know, Ving Rhames comes back, you know, really sort of the, 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 the reboot after a long hiatus due to the, you know, John Woo fiasco of Mission Impossible 2. I know certain people love that, but the film was largely regarded as being too much. And so it's regrounded. There are real stakes. Um, and really the template of who Ethan Hunt is now and what the action sequences of these movies are now really kind of finds itself in three and four. And we've been sort of living in that ever since. This feels like another page turn. This feels like another chapter break. Again, maybe another book. This feels like a new era. I will discuss that more in spoilers. And because of that, it's tonally a little bit different. But what the writers are trying to do, I believe, and the directors are trying to do, is link it back to Ethan's past. So we get a little bit of flashbacks of Ethan uh, early on. Um, and it's more so th sort of thematic allusions to repeating patterns within the franchise. There is no way to, to do this movie from a creative perspective that isn't challenging and, and for a variety of reasons. Here's, here's one of the main reasons. The, the plot of these movies is almost always the same sort of thing. There is a mission. If you go, if you fail that mission or if you get caught, captured, then IMF is going to disavow you. So Ethan and his team, whoever those people are at that time, are probably going to be disavowed, are probably going to be hunted. And it always turns out that Ethan perceives that the mission is not as black and white as the IMF or the U.S. government or world governments are presently perceiving it. There's always details and things that Ethan intuits 
He may not always be able to know it, but he for, for fact, but he intuits based on the data that there's more to the story. And so he he just goes rogue. Every time he goes rogue and the team has to go further and further in each subsequent film to re, repatriate themselves to, to the U.S. government and to the IMF. And along the way, they gain allies, gain trust, and gain, t- gain team, team members, lose team members, et cetera, et cetera. And so it gets challenging to every time that they, the characters in world have to go further and further and further and get further and further and further disavowed and have to go further and further and further to repatriate themselves. How do you keep introducing stakes into that story in world? How do you keep, how do you keep it grounded in any sense of reality? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's very difficult from a creative perspective. Um, how do you reset it to where it's believable? The stuff that this team does is dangerous because we've seen we've seen spectacle. We've seen the team do impossible tasks with no time and no oxygen from deep space and all this sort of stuff. Alongside that, you have the real world implications of Tom Cruise wants to do as much of these movies as practically as possible to give people real thrills and to incentivize them to come to his movies in a movie theater on the biggest possible screen. Which means since four, I believe that's correct, he's been doing insane stunts. Augmented by CGI and stunt people for sure, but he's doing a lot of them. And the main bulk of the task he's actually doing, it's not that he's like climbing a facsimile of a tower, son of a bitch is climbing the tower, and we were just removing some cables digitally. You know, he's, he's riding motorcycles off of mountains. He's skydiving. He's jumping on buildings and shattering his foot as he lands on the other side and continuing the scene. Like, it's, there are real stakes to the film. So, of course, the question becomes, how do you keep topping yourself in the stunt department without killing or maiming Tom Cruise or a stunt person? So that's the challenge. So it, it, the, this entire franchise kind of becomes, if you're going to reduce it down to base level, a high wire act of what kind of compelling story can they create that feels challenging enough against these characters in world who we've seen beat the odds time in and time out. And in our world, the real world, how can they create stunt sequences that are intelligent and creative and practically done and can be done practically by a 60-something-year-old man without killing him um, that we've never seen before. How do we do that? What is that possibility? And I think on those two fronts, this movie delivers. This, mo- this movie series has become unintentionally the inverse of the Fast X series, where the stakes have gotten higher and higher in Fast X, and the, uh, you know, for the sake of the world, right? The plot, I guess, the concepts, have gotten higher and higher and higher, but the stakes feel lower and lower and lower and lower because every bad guy becomes an ally. Nobody ever dies. Even when they die, they come back. It is a cheapened version of a a spy adventure movie. And whereas Mission Impossible has, quite frankly, supplanted the James Bond series, at least here in the United States, um, and this this one, I would argue, feels the most James Bondy of all of them, um, it definitely feels at certain times of their elements that could have been taken from like 
a modern it's like a modernized version of 80s bond in a way uh while at the same time reminiscent of elements of last the last crusade um and obviously a little bit of borrows a little bit of john wick at times but still retains its own identity the film series mission impossible has a extended sequence i'm comparing and contrasting again an extended sequence in Italy that is not completely similar, but is car-based, mostly car-based, like a Fast and Furious movie. And all of the all of the stakes of that scene, the humor of that scene, the thrills, the chills, the spills, the dangers of that scene, all of them feel infinitely more real. And while not being realistic, grounded within a reality of a movie world the world of mission impossible that we've seen thus far that you really feel the danger and the excitement and the humor of what is happening right we're pretty sure based on the runtime tom cruise doesn't die at the end of that scene we're pretty sure of it most of the time but the movie is successful in making you think that he may not die but something very bad could happen and that's what these movies, uh, espionage thrillers, long-term franchises, have to get you to believe. Whereas the Fast X series, you never believe for a moment that anything bad could happen. And you know for a fact that if anything bad happens, it's probably going to be undone in the very next scene or the very next movie or two movies from now or whatever. There are no stakes. Even the people who've died in real life aren't dead in those movies. So it's not just a matter of the practicality of it all, which makes it a better action, probably the best action franchise of all time. And arguably, I mean, it's just to me in my mind, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't do an instant reaction for it, but I did watch dial of destiny. And I did like it. I liked it very much. Um, I think it's a great adjacent film. It's not equal to the original trilogy, but it's a nice adjacent film. It's like an addendum film. It's a, it's a, it's a epilogue film, right? You can skip right over four uh, and go straight to five and five's your four and Bob's your uncle, right? Um, and it tells a story. I think it's a good story. What was missing in that movie, among a variety of things, of course, was yes, the practicality of it all. And some of that's due to the limitations of the 80-year-old action star who's at the center of it. Um, but, but it's, 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 it's also just a sense of intelligence and Spielbergian boyish wry adventure and humor that he just put in his direction. You're obviously missing Douglas Slocum. I think Douglas is his name. Who's one of the great cinematographers of classic Hollywood who went on to work until he was in his eighties, did Last Crusade when he was 75. So you're, you're, you've lost the old Hollywood craftsmanship that went into making the Indiana Jones movies because those people have passed away. And you're missing the effervescent direction of Steven Spielberg when he was young and cocky and had something to prove and still remember what it was like to imagine as a child. Ironically, some of that sensibility finds itself here in this Mission Impossible movie, which for the most part is very serious. And again, has a foreboding, dare I say, existential horror element to it. And so it, it's not the balls-of-the-wall fun action series 
that we've come to know again through like four, five, six. It's more akin to the foreboding danger of the first and third film where you really believe that Philip Seymour Hoffman is a dangerous, dangerous person. So the threat feels real and it feels personal. And this movie harkens back to that. Um, and the action is in direct comparison to Dial of Destiny and um, Fast X. And I would put Dial of Destiny well above Fast X. But those are two movies that have car chases and chase sequences and train sequences and so forth and so on. And nothing in either one of those movies even comes close to topping the two main action sequences of this film. This film is also obviously a part one. And so as a part one, uh, there's enough of a conclusion that I think it's satisfactory. I think it's a more satisfactory endpoint in this film than there is in Across the Spider-Verse. So there's that. You know, this, it was interesting about this movie is you can directly compare it to three major film releases that have come out uh, thus far in the year. With Fast X, we have franchise film releases, Dial of Destiny, and Across the Spider-Verse. Um, I think there's a satisfactory enough ending here. I have thoughts about that I'll get into with, with the spoiler section of what potentially is happening with the film, uh, with the next film. Um, I'm trying to think of kind of what final points I want to put on this. Mm, I can't go much further without getting into some spoilers. I think because it's a part one, in many ways, a part one of a, of a two-part story thus far, as far as we know, it's very, it's got that darker foreboding, our hero is on his heels most of the time. We're seeing a more aged, noticeably aged Ethan Hunt, and therefore a more noticeably aged Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, uh, it's sort of a, you know, worst kept secret in Hollywood, the Tom Cruise, the digital de-aging has been used for years on celebrities and stars in movies, not to recreate their entire uh, uh, young face, but to s smooth out and keep them relatively young looking. Um, no different than like a TikTok or Instagram filter that kind of smooths and evens you out. Tom Cruise notoriously was using those for years and years and years as a requirement in all of his movies. They're either doing less of it or they're not doing it at all because I think it serves the purpose. And when we are introduced to Ethan Hunt, the immediate thought I had was how much his, his face looked like John Voight from the first film. And it really made me wonder, am I going to be able to believe this? His hair is distracting. I don't want to say he has hair plugs, but something is up with his hair. Um, and his hairline. I'm just, I'm not sure, you know, if he went to Turkey and got that surgery that all the celebrities love to get, uh, I'm not sure, but he's aged. And then it factors in with no commentary, no, you know, you're a million years old. You're too old to be doing this. None of it. It's just, Ethan is unable to keep up in a way that we've never seen before, which by the way, introduces a real sense of danger 
that this film needs this many episodes into its run. This film series needs. So that was really appreciated. They're taking some real chances here. They're introducing, again, some plot points that feel straight out of James Bond, some characters and characterizations that feel more James Bondy than ever before in Mission Impossible, with the exception of, again, maybe the first one, are really sort of distinctive characters that feel very Bond villain-esque. So I won't say more about it than that. Um, if I had to give this thing a score out of five stars, uh, I can do halves, I can't do quarters. My heart of hearts says it's about a four and a quarter film. It is not my favorite in the series. It was not one that I left and was like, I'm going to immediately jump that up to like, this is up there with the top of the top of the top. It's a, another extremely successful entry into this franchise. If somebody walked away from it and said, it's my favorite, I couldn't necessarily disagree with them. If somebody walked out and said, I think it's a weaker entry or a mid-tier entry, I couldn't necessarily disagree with them because it's tonally and stylistically very different than what a lot of recent fans of the series are probably used to. It harkens back while also still doing its own thing to a, to a past tonality that the series hasn't had in a long time. And it's drawing connections with the character that are not necessarily flattering. And so that's a very interesting thing. And quite frankly, Cruz is just getting older. So it's, it feels different. I don't know how to, to describe it other than it just kind of feels different. So if you're going for the sameness, you might be disappointed. I was not disappointed. By the end of the movie, his age was not even a thought anymore. And, I, you know, I was really, really blown away, especially by the second half. I will say, for a movie that is part one of two parts, you probably could have trimmed 40 minutes off of this film. It's not that anything in it is bad. It's just like, it just doesn't need to go on this long. And there are a few reveals. There's one main reveal in a sort of Mexican standoff sort of scenario that is not surprising whatsoever if you have seen any of the marketing for the film. It's very, very obvious. And in fact, it was a piece of the marketing that I that I figured out. I was like, oh, the, the movie must be about this because of a piece of marketing, because of the, one of the trailers. And lo and behold, it is. So when we get to that reveal, it didn't do anything for me. And it was supposed to be a really great sort of the movies ahead of you moment and it really wasn't so if you are a i would recommend it i would recommend it in, in theaters i saw it in d box i think it's called at cinemark and uh, i had a great experience i cranked that son of a bitch up as far as it would go i was rocking and rolling and shifting when you're going over the uh, pavement at one point cobblestone pavement in venice the chairs moving and it feels as if you're going over cobblestone it was incredible so really fun time premium price on it though uh, I would, I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed the film. I'm really interested to see what the next chapter brings, what part two brings. And I have a feeling I know what it's going to bring. And I'll talk more about my thoughts about the film in the spoiler section. If you are a patron, keep going. This episode doesn't end. It's going to roll on. If you are a non-patron, this is the end of the episode. So until next time, binge on. Binge on.